0: Welcome to the MacroFab Engineering Podcast. I'm your guest, William Mathewson.
1: And we're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 228.
2: William Matheson is an entrepreneur, electrical engineer, and user experience designer for his company, William Matheson Devices, otherwise known as WMD. William began WMD in 2007 and since has designed over 70 products that inspire artists and sound designers throughout the music industry. So thank you so much William for coming on our podcast.
0: Absolutely, thanks for having me
2: guys. There's one other uh, thing to note. This might be the well, first of all, uh, it's it's only been a matter of time until I asked William to come on as a guest <laughs> for sure. But this might be the only time that I've had both of my bosses, my last bosses on the podcast <laughs> at the oh, same yeah. time. <laughs> so William, yeah. Tell us more about you.
0: Well, uh, I started my little company in 2007 and started with guitar effects pedals and I would take designs from like GeneralGuitarGadgets.com, um, a guy named JD sleep, who has done a lot of good work for like the DIY industry and, um, looked at those designs. I used to build like l- kits and clones for various bands around town. And cause I had a little gig in a recording studio for a while. So build guys' pedals, and then eventually that turned into doing some mods and learning how everything really worked and then starting to engineer stuff and then putting out my own designs from like 2004 to 2007.
2: Nice. So uh, so 2007, did you, uh, w- did you go to school for electronics? Uh, what, what's the background there?
0: So my school background is I have three semesters of electrical engineering, and then I dropped out to get a music degree instead because that's what I really wanted to do was some work in a recording studio and record bands and do live sound and things like that. And then I realized, well, you need a lot of money to do that. And you can't make that much money doing those gigs. It's really hard to get into. So I always loved electronics and always loved working on stuff. So I kind of found my niche building things, doing the custom stuff, and then going off that way. So... Three semesters of electrical engineering, which I definitely use, definitely use all the math, the digital logic and the assembly programming and all that stuff. So
2: three semesters, enough of electrical engineering.
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) it was enough for me, (laughs) enough for like perpetuating 1970s analog technology.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's certainly not the case nowadays, right?
0: No, not at all now.
1: (laughs) So, William, more about you. More about me, okay. Yeah, what is your origin story? (laughs) My origin story, okay. So So
2: before
1: before you went to school and all that, like, bring us into
0: you. Sure, okay. So let's start in, like, middle school. I grew up in Longmont, Colorado here, right? And because we're based in Denver, Colorado, where Stephen is now. And so I grew up in Longmont and got into music, played the saxophone and then my dad had like a 1984 ibm pc that ran dos so in that era i was able to get onto the bulletin board systems and find like little bits of music and i got a little bit into the tracker scene from that and from early days of the internet so got into like omega trackers and fast tracker 2 so what what are trackers so trackers are like Sample based, well, some of them are sample based. The early ones are like video game music. So you get like three tracks and it's what all your old like Mario sounds basically are. All your Omegas or early Nintendo, any of that stuff is uh, how you write music for video games. So it's like a four, three or four tracks you get and you can play noises and like really simple waveforms. So you have to make songs that are like really tiny in data because data is really expensive back then in cartridges. So, so like I learned to make some music on that, and got into electronic music because of the tracker scene. And then from there, like played saxophone and made some of my own music in high school. So I've always been like interested in that in in electronic and dance music. From there, so that's kind of my background and what got me into music. I Was growing up in a, you know, '90s kid in high school.
1: So, so what what made you actually decide to go to school for? At the time, you didn't know it was just going to be for three semesters, right? No. Unless that was your plan.
0: Yeah. I guess I just, <laughs> I like always knew that that was what I wanted to do, was play with electronics or be into electronics. So I I don't think I put as much thought into it as maybe I should have, but I just went for it and that's what I started off and then changed my mind later, but still ended up in the same place. I wasn't a great student in college wasn't a great student in high school either. But you've
2: you've certainly turned it into a lot more than most people who, you know, get that last two semesters go on to be for sure. Oh,
0: sure. Yeah, I I definitely like realized in college that I can teach myself anything I want to know. That was one of the powerful skills that I got in college was like learning how to learn and learning how to teach yourself and how to work towards goals.
2: Honestly, I think that's one of the biggest uh, points that college is supposed to impart upon you you know with, with in in true like dry electrical engineering there's so much just i don't know academia it's just dripping with academia that that like i've seen some of the projects that william got to do in the programs that were not electrical engineering and i'm super jealous because like they like i was like that's what i wanted to do like i chose wrong <laughs> mm.
0: yeah it was my senior project for my music degree I built a three-channel tube guitar effects pedal. Designed and built it, powder-coated it, did the whole thing. And it's one of my favorite things. I still use it today in my office for testing guitar pedals. I haven't changed the tubes in like 12 years. <laughs> 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 but don't need to. It's like a half-watt little lamp, So totally fine. Still fun. works. Still works, yep.
1: Cool. Yeah. So, um, so you, you went into kind of like building like one-off pedals and stuff like that for for local bands and stuff like that. What made you decide, I want to build, like, a thousand of these things now?
0: Well, I didn't start with a thousand. I started much smaller than that. But I had a guitar teacher named Dave Devine who still teaches uh, and plays jazz around here. That's such a guitar teacher name. Oh, he's he's, uh, he's a madman. He's great. One of the greatest dudes. (laughs) So he's, um, he's like, I, I think I was working on a prototype Fat Man, and was like, just kind of tinkering around with it. I knew what I wanted to do, and I was making it for a friend. And- Is that a kind of
1: pedal? I'm yeah, that was our first
0: pedal that came out, was the fact. Okay. yep. And he was like, well, you should like, maybe make 10 of these. And I got a guy in California that will probably buy some. So here's his contact. And he sent me up with Sean Cleary of Analog Haven, who was our first customer, first like dealer customer. So, and I send him a prototype. He looked at it for a couple of days and he was like, send me, I'll take 10. Great. Nice. Okay. So I did that and then, uh, he sold them and he was like, well, I need 10 more. I was like, okay, well this is like turning into an actual thing. And so we were doing that. And at that time I was working on the Geiger counter and doing like that took me like a full summer of every evening developing, designing, writing the assembly language. I learned AVR assembly for that product. I didn't know it beforehand because I learned uh, Motorola 68K in school. So taught myself AVR for that. Sent Sean won, and he was like, give me 25 of these now. And he, I got them <laughs> to him, and he sold them in two days and then placed another order for 25, and I was like, damn, okay, this is a real thing, so we can do this. So I started so, off with – What was your –
1: Oh, sorry. Sorry. Oh,
0: I I was going to say, I just started off with like pretty small runs, like 40 of the Fat Mans, I think, and then 80 of the Geiger counters at at first.
1: So, my question was on on the Geiger counter. So, it's got uh, some digital logic in there. What made you decide AVR assembly language instead of like C or something (laughs) like that? Was that a performance reason or that was just. Because you wanted to do it.
0: No. Okay. So the reason I decided, so I had a job in college where I was doing engineering work for this guy in his basement in superior and his company was manufacturing stepper motors and controllers. So he did everything in AVR assembly. So I could ask him a few questions here and there and he helped guide me on some stuff and kind of got me started. I also had like access to a CNC milling machine that helped me do that. So I was like kind of in that world already a little bit, but but decided to teach myself based on that. Like he had the programming tools, so I had examples. So it's just like being near it and they have free software toolkit. So, and what I really did was pretty straightforward. So I didn't need a high level language to do it. It was much easier to just write some stuff in AVR and then upload it directly to the chip and you can an LED and it's like really easy to do. I didn't know how to set up the AVR tool chain with C and all that. So I didn't take the time to do it.
2: I think, I think it's, it's important to note that it's, it's still 2020 and the Geiger counter still has assembly code on it. Yeah. And I love that. I love
0: yeah, it. it has, it's so great. We haven't changed that design <laughs> other than like updates to manufacturability to make it easier to make. Like the code hasn't changed since uh, probably 2008. I did a minor update to change how the led works after the first run that was it so
2: well okay so let's let's take a quick step backwards because we've been throwing around some names like fat man and geiger counter yeah let's uh let's let's take a quick step back and just describe those two because the fat man was your first product and the geiger counter was kind of the one that got you on the map right
0: yeah the fat man was based on the mxr envelope filter and did some mods to it and tweaks to it. And that became the WMD fat man, which and so that's a guitar effects. Pedal. Yeah. Guitar effects pedal. Can you
1: kind of, yep. is it kind of hard to, ex- can you explain how that sounds maybe?
0: Yeah. So it's a, it's an Ottawa. So wah, 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 it'll like follow your picking, and you can do like chicken picking and it'll give you like a Jerry Garcia kind of sound. It's that Ottawa. Um, that,
2: that almost funk envelope. Yeah. Sound.
0: Yeah. Funk envelope. Exactly.
2: That evolved into uh, into the ProtoStar, right?
0: Eventually, yeah.
2: <laughs> it took some time. It Took a right? lot of
0: time. Yeah, that that was like twenty fourteen or something. That came out or later.
1: And then, what what does the Geiger counter?
0: So do the like? Geiger counter is it's a little guitar preamp that's analog, so gain and tone, so some like a little high end filtering, a little low end filtering, and then that goes into an eight bit analog to digital converter, and it runs your signal through wavetables. So basically just a mathematical lookup table that you know, across the x-axis is your input, across the y-axis is some squiggly lines. That's your output. So as you swing left to right, you get more harmonics depending on where your guitar strings are. So it's a wavetable, not really modulator, but wavetable distortion, and then sample rate reduction and bit depth reduction. So it's like a fidelity reduction pedal. It sounds pretty gross, it can.
2: And it was, that, that, that pedal, correct me if I'm wrong, but that was used on the uh, 2016 Doom soundtrack,
0: right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely was, that uh, Mick Gordon did, yep.
2: Because it, it, if, if anyone's heard that soundtrack, it gets nasty, and that's exactly what the Geiger counter's kind of intended.
0: Yeah, for. yeah, it totally is.
2: There's, there's not a lot of cleanliness behind the Geiger counter.
0: No, not at all. So, and that's the product that really put us on the map. Yeah. Gotcha.
1: Alright, so the name. WMD, is that like the is that the official name or is it William Matthews Devices? Like what, what's on the paperwork?
0: Well so what's on the paperwork is it's I have a corporate name that is a it's real Canvas Inc., it's my art company name, but we filed a DBA for WMD. So I have a corporate name uh-huh. and then it's really William Matthewson Devices parenthesis WMD.
1: Yeah, so did you come up with it, you wanted it to be WMD or did it just fall that way? It just or? fell
0: that way cuz it's it's William Matthewson Devices it just worked out that way. So, my name <laughs> plus devices. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, and and a lot of the logos have like the radiate radiation symbol and things like that. It 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 all plays on that Definitely theme. played on it.
0: In the early days we played on it pretty hard. And then now yeah we're trying to look and make products that are a lot more professional level instead of just like over the top. So we've taken some of the like greediness out of the logo and refined a bit, but, but that's the origin.
2: There's, a, there's, there's just a hair less cheese. Yeah.
0: yeah. Right? Try not to be cheesy. <laughs>
1: yeah. So how did y'all go from, cause you, you started with pedals mm-hmm. uh, for guitar effects. How did you get into modular synth stuff because um when steven talks about stuff on the podcast he's doing more work working with wmd um so how did y'all you know go to that
0: so i'd known about modular synthesizers from my time at cu denver they have an arp 2600 and then uh, an old professor roy pritz had a giant Moog modular system from the late 60s. That was really, really cool. So I was familiar with modular synthesis, but I I wasn't really interested in it at that time. But Sean from Analog Haven said, hey, you should take this Geiger counter pedal and make me a Euro module. And I'll promise to buy 100 of them off the bat. I'll buy your first batch of 100. And I was like, well, if you give me the money ahead of time, I can afford to do that, and I'll figure it out. And I'll do the engineering, and then You know, that'll work. So he sent me money and then I made the product and then sent them to him and they sold and then started to get more Eurorack dealers and kind of fell in love with that system because guitar effects are, there's a ton of companies doing great stuff already. In Eurorack, we were of the first like nine or 15 companies, we were really early getting into it. So there was a lot of unexplored territory. And I was like having a ton more fun designing things in Euro than I was for pedals. Because I could go a lot crazier, which is where what I wanted to do at the time. It was like push my engineering ability and come up with like ideas and sounds. And, and I had the freedom to do that in EuroRack. And the more knobs I put on a guitar pedal, the less it sold. Because I still put out a few more pedals. We put out the <laughs> acoustic trauma, which had like 17 knobs. It was a two preamp pedal with a three-band EQ, fully parametric, and a compressor uh, or a noise gate, and it did not do well in the guitar community. Synth guys loved it, but guitar players it was like way too much for them. So, you know, I,
2: I've I've found basically exactly that uh, the, the those particular realms, the synth realm and the guitar realm, in so many ways are opposite of each other. Uh, like yes, and 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 not not in any way like a, a dig towards guitar guys because hey, I'm holding my hand up, I'm one of those yeah. guys. But you you don't dumb it down, but you simplify it for them. And 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 even we've had multiple discussions at work about this. The label on the knob matters so much because because there's stigma behind the label of in the guitar realm. Like if if you say a particular word, it means something in a guitar guy's head. But in the synth realm, like adding more features and adding more knobs is usually, not usually, but but there's a lot of positive behind yeah. that. Uh, you know, you have way more freedom to be creative and it's accepted a lot more. Um, and in fact, if you add a feature, it doesn't necessarily scare a synth guy away. He's like, oh my God, what can I do with this?
0: Exactly, yeah, that's, that's what I found. It was a lot more fun to design when I, because I like to add stuff. I'm kind of a feature creeper, so guitar effects pedals don't work with a bunch of feature creep usually.
1: You the right you're in the right podcast yeah.
0: though. <laughs> Definitely I'm <laughs> on the right we're, podcast. We're
1: the masters of feature <laughs> creep on on the Macro Engineering podcast. I believe that.
2: <laughs> yeah. Fe- feature creep until the product doesn't even exist.
0: Yeah. yeah. It just becomes everything. <laughs> yeah, it's <just> all <laughs> becomes a simulation. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um so okay, so you you we went from building a couple units and then you're building 10 a hundred units. Okay. Now you have right now you have your own electronic assembly line, uh, basically with full build box, everything. How did that
0: happen? So in 2012, I had more orders than I could build. And um, I had one guy helping me out doing service man assembly. And we, so like on the Geiger counter on everything, we built it all in house. And the Geiger counter was always, uh, well, not always, almost always fully service mount. I think the second run was fully service mount. The first run had like a couple service mount parts on it. But So we migrated to service mount, but we was building everything with tweezers and soldering irons, which is Oof. ridiculous. But that's another one of the things that my employer um, that I used as machines, he had a, a dude doing all the tweezer work. And so all the microcontrollers and these um stepper motor controllers were done by hand with tweezers and he was doing 0402 and MLFs and crazy stuff and we were doing 0603 so it was like easy compared to that so so we did things by hand up until 2012 and,
2: and no microscope right?
0: uh no we had mag- little magnifiers but no microscope okay yeah just like the 3 diopter lighted magnifiers so in 2012, I had too many orders. I put out a couple products, and they got lots of pre-orders, and it was great. And I decided, well, there's no way that I'm ever going to catch up. So I did a bunch of research, found a small tabletop pick-and-place machine that I could get, and bought it, found a used one. It was the same one that um, Adafruit had that they started out with. I don't know if you've read through her blog and stuff, but she started out with this um, Japanese-made MDC 7722, single head, all pneumatic, um, pretty decent vision, like three camera, flying camera, pick and place, that would do like 2,000 parts an hour, considering we could do maybe like 600, 800 by hand. That was a huge upgrade. And then, you know, it frees up people to actually do work that the machines can't do. So...
1: That's actually a really nice pick and place to start it was it off great. with. Um, yeah, I was... F- so at, Ma- at MacFab, we started with a machine that did 400.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's... Wh- was it one of the manual assist ones? No? Fully nope. auto? Okay.
2: Was that the GSM?
0: No, the one before the GSM, the uh, Medel. Oh, oh Medel. Oh, the, my, yeah, okay. Medel. Okay. Yeah. I remember looking at it's those. Uh, ext- yeah. 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 I did a bunch of research. But, hey,
1: we bought it for two grand
0: okay i i took so i took loaded. a loan out and like it was like maybe a grand a month payment for the machine and the oven and the little manual stencil printer and so i could make it work so so the machine itself was like 30,000 hmm. with with all the feeders and stuff so it wasn't crazy but it wasn't That's cheap not too bad no so, not really like the whole kit was was pretty reasonable yeah, that's a that's a big bullet to bite at that time, yeah. right? Well it was, but I had I think I had a lot more than that in orders. So I was like, well, I can make sense of this. But then to further make sense of it, now we had excess capacity once I got through all those orders. So I started working with a couple other Euro guys to or Eurorec manufacturers to make uh, make their boards. So we just do a little bit of contract work and then that would help supplement the cost of the machine and the all the extra space it took up. So
2: in in the era community, you were the guy with the truck, right? They were like, Oh, uh, you could help me move my mattress. Exactly. Right? <laughs> well, that's the thing is that the machine's not running. It's not making money.
0: Yep. It's just costing money. So might as well keep it running, especially if you have excess capacity.
2: So did you have a building at that time or where were you working? I was for? in my
0: garage. So I had an nice. old house in Denver with a built outbuilding garage built in 1938. So everything fit in that. I had a small mill for making the stomp box enclosures. I had my pick and place. I had the air compressor in a shed because it was loud, and then there were f- three workbenches in there. So, and we were there from 2007 when we started to 2014. So we we're there for quite oh, a while. Seven years. Yeah, in seven the garage. years in the garage. Yep. It got cramped and we had to move.
2: How many uh, How many people did you have working for you at that time or during that
0: time? Early on, like one. One, maybe two for quite a while up until like 2012, 2013, 2014. And then I think we added like a second shift part-time. And I think there were maybe five maximum, but I only had three workbenches. So
1: few people just stood in the corner assembling boards. Yeah.
0: No, there. they came in later and ex- we <laughs> we made that work and just exchanged positions. Man, d-
2: double shifting that early yeah. on. Well, short,
0: you know, short, is <laughs> part-time. Like, everybody was hired out of like service industry or, you know, coffee or friends from school. So we didn't do like real interviews or anything then. <laughs> I ended up with great people. <laughs> so.
2: so some of who are still that there. That
0: is true. Yep. Yeah,
2: yep. or or if they're if they're not currently working, they still hang around. Yeah,
0: no, sure. that uh, several of them are still there. Um, one guy who's been with me from the beginning is still there, which is great. He he
2: he actually he told me a story that uh, he was, uh, I don't know, maybe it was he was leaving class or something like that, and you gave him a call and you were like you wanted his information so that you could you could hire him uh at that moment and and he was just like well okay i guess this is a thing and he's been working for he's ever yeah. since
0: yeah it's true i love it's that true. but i had an accountant at the time that was like well you should really like have all your employees set up so like he was immediately a w w2 employee and we like set everything up legit from the beginning which was maybe not the best but because it's expensive <laughs> <laughs>
2: but, the, the, the alternative is you walk into the garage and and your paycheck is on your yeah, chair right? yeah exactly yeah, an envelope yeah. of cash yeah, yeah. <laughs> now i remember when um
1: steven first walked into macrofab because he came in looking for pcb assembly uh in houston and he left with a job yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: nice
1: sometimes that's, yeah. Yeah, that's that's sometimes that's how it works yeah that's great that's how it works um so manu- manufacturing yeah. now um there's a stigma that hardware is hard, and you you are a you started a hardware company. Would you agree with that? Is hardware, hardware is hard? very
0: hard. I didn't know how hard it was going to be, but it continues to provide me with challenges that I didn't see coming. Continually, it seems <laughs> to get harder, all the time.
2: You know, uh, I was actually talking with Matt, the pick and place operator, mm-hmm. um, just the other day, and and he was. We were kind of regaling his initial foray into pick and placing and he's like the stuff i complained about on the first handful of boards that i ran like i should just shut up i should have just because like the stuff he's running now is like 10 times more difficult than than what he started mm-hmm. with and and he was pulling his hair out yeah then. <laughs> yeah yeah when
1: we got our our first pick and place to actually put parts down you were like wow this is amazing this is so easy What happens is you just keep ramping your complexity. Exactly.
0: Yeah, we're doing like a four oh two almost everywhere now, and double sided assemblies and surface mount headers. I have to deal with step stencils, which we hadn't had to deal with. But like when your your pin headers don't always get soldered, you like have to come up with a solution, and that's what it is. So it's more expensive, and it's like another layer of engineering on top of stuff that like I didn't even know that was an option, and now it's a solution. It's like the more you design, the more stuff you try and pack in, and then the better you make it, and then the harder it is to actually make.
1: Yeah, because it's not just electrical engineering to design the PCBA. There's also another complete different side that most people don't even deal with, which is manufacturing engineering.
0: Yeah, there's a ton of manufacturing engineering and like learning how to have clearances. And so we have a selective soldering machine, which changed all of our layouts afterwards to have like three to six millimeter clearance around any through hole part that needs to be selective soldered. So I have a whole bunch of legacy designs that cannot be run on that machine and are being slowly phased out and replaced with updated designs that are designed to actually be made all by machines because the quality is better and it's faster and it's just so much easier. But I didn't know I was going to have to do that at the time I wish I would have like had all these rules cuz I could have like future-proofed myself but you don't know until you know until you're in it.
2: You know, I, I, to be entirely honest, I'm not sure. Like I've I've heard that a thousand times. If I if I just if I knew, then I would have changed things but but you hear Today, because of the actions that of you course. took, you know, and and so I think that that I think it's, yeah, like hindsight's twenty twenty, but but at the same time, like you're successful, you have a huge shop, you're running a bunch of stuff, and you are phasing out the legacy designs for better ones, yeah, you know. Exactly. So
1: I... And and that that's one thing is DFM design for manufacturability is an always evolving process with your products. You. You will always strive to get that last little bit of of quality, right? Um And so it's always tweaking your processes, always tweaking your design, mm-hmm. maybe. Like you say, going to selective solder. When you first started, you were hand soldering everything. Hand so It didn't matter really how it yeah. was designed.
0: So when I was working in the recording studio, my mentor used to say, if this isn't the best shit you've ever done, you shouldn't be doing it. And that was with regard to his recordings, whatever band he was working on, he always was doing the very best thing he'd ever done. That's how I looked at it. I've tried to take that and just always done my best. And so you just keep having to learn because you keep getting better. So you keep better doing better. Something like that. (laughs) Always working on the best, next best thing.
2: Right, right. How can you you improve it? For sure. I actually I actually really like
1: that uh mentality. Um, I think we I think you know most people try to do that, but putting it in words of make what you're doing the best it yeah, can be. No matter
0: what it is, whether it's a client project or whether it's your stuff or anything, it doesn't matter. Make it a sandwich. You Better make the best sandwich. Making a sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why not?
2: <laughs> you know, a uh, quick caveat, uh, you know you're mentioning DFM. One thing that I've find interesting, um, especially with just my experience at different locations. DFM means a different thing to every single person uh and and so like i mean if if you go into any engineering firm right now and say the word dfm you'll get a different answer from people and 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 mainly that's because they look at it from different ways but at the same time from contract manufacturers it has to mean a different thing based off of whatever their capability and machinery is and and just you know if you're quoting something out even with macrofab uh, you know, MacroFab's going to have specific rules around their thing. So whatever you think is a golden DFM for your product might not actually be perfect for Macrofab, you know, and it's worth having a chat about that with whoever you're getting your stuff made just so that you make sure, like a great example with, with, with WMD, like sometimes from the clients that we, we deal with, they don't know the rules like the selective solder thing. And, and they, they might, you know, in some cases violate that six millimeter rule around uh, selective solder so you know we can help and walk them through like hey how can we change your design sets that it will work this because you know paying someone to, to hand solder through whole stuff is a hell of a lot more than just press and go on a machine you know and that's where that's simplistic right? yeah
0: especially when it's a giant board and there's 400 500 solder points it's way easier right. to just have the machine right. do it but you gotta have the clearance or or you end up with a blob
1: Yep, or or just sucking parts off. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, done that before.
2: <laughs> we, we we've said this a thousand times on the on the podcast, but but if you're if if you're starting a new design, that's a great time to get in contact with your contract manufacturer, mm-hmm. like before you've put your first part down on your layout, contact your contact manufacturer and be like, Hey, what are you, I want to go with you. What are your rules for this? And then design around that. And man, it will go so yeah, much. Yeah. Because more. you
0: really want to form a partnership with the people you're working with. And so if you design something in their best interest, they can save you the most money. And when everybody makes money, everybody's happy. So,
2: and they will love you.
0: Yeah, they will. Because you listen, you pay attention and you, 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 <laughs> <laughs> you care instead of just throwing stuff together and saying, make it and make it cheap. Right. Yeah.
2: And make it with
1: zero fail- failures.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> and, I, and I'm going to provide you exact quantity yep. of every part. No over. <laughs> <or entire laughs> no over. <parts>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Been there.
0: Oh yeah. you
1: going to make me, you're going to make me jump off my roof. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Nothing like running out of parts when the machines hot and running and set up and, and then you gotta hand yeah. play some later because there's other stuff in line.
2: Well, yeah, and you're and you're thinking about it. It's half a day to tear down the machine and set up on you know the next client just to come back to to do the previous clients like five remaining boards. Mm-hmm. It's oh, it's awful. Yeah.
1: So I got I a question to ask. Um, since y'all are in Denver, is that reflow oven really nice to be around when it's cold outside?
0: Yeah, it's nice when it's cold. Yeah. Yeah. So we. It sucks in the summer. It definitely <laughs> sucks in the summer. We have a swamp cooler that helps a bit but it's still hot damn hot in there
1: yeah and our because the uh at macfab it's houston so it's always hot so you just have air conditioning but and the our steven remembers the old machine it was was like a bravo four zone Mm.
2: that thing thing was a turd
1: it was (laughs) terrible it was a terrible (laughs) machine it always broke down and it radiated so much heat like you could be like 10 feet away from it and you would feel it
2: yeah well well, okay also also in order to do the lead free soldering that we had to do we had like what two zones at a hundred percent and one zone oh, yeah. at like 95 percent oh man like Dewy that thing cycle. was cooked. Yeah. that was the only way we could get it hot enough yeah. and and it was just oh that thing was redlining all day long yeah
1: yeah the, the, the moment that we, we when we bought our new heller um it used the same amount of power for a ten zone. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's amazing.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's just the insulation and like, the design is so much better. Yeah. and the Heller you can just put your hand on it; you don't even feel but the yeah, heat Yeah, we off
0: of we it. have a Heller seventeen oh seven. We just lean up against it. It's we like, actually it's have the, the, the same one zone. as Macrofilm. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a great machine.
2: It's excellent oven. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. We got a little conveyor oven at the beginning. Well, not the beginning. It was the second oven. I had a batch oven. At first, and that was fine for the little guy, but when we got our Samsung, we got a little like conveyor oven, maybe a eighteen inch belt, but it was like four hundred. Is that was that was that a gold flow? I don't know. I honestly Benchtop? don't remember. I, I
1: actually still have our first reflow, which was a a three zone eighteen inch gold flow, mm-hmm. um, and that thing was awesome. I really need to dig that thing out and just kind of like make pizzas with it. Or there you something. go.
0: Yeah, ours okay. was not awesome. <laughs> it it was, I had too big of an extraction system, so like it wouldn't heat evenly, and it had to run at a hundred percent power for everything. And it ran a computer that was definitely from like nineteen eighty eight. Ran old DOS, with with ah, a DOS classic floppy. <laughs> Oh,
1: that was classic. <laughs> the, R, R, the, the the pick and place that Steven remembers was a universal GSM, which is our second one, and it ran actually OS2 warp
2: operating mm. system. You know, th- that thing we were talking about um, places per hour, that thing was uh, probably faster than 400 uh, uh, parts per hour, but it probably ran about 400 parts per hour because it broke down all the damn uh, time yeah. <laughs> trying to get it to actually play. When, yeah, when that thing was out.
1: running... <laughs> It could place, because it was a dual beam system, it could place about 12 to 15,000 parts an hour, and then it would break.
2: Yeah. <laughs> what a nightmare. That, that, thing, that thing was the size of a freaking car. It was huge. Mm-hmm. and It worked heavy. great when it ran, though. Yeah. Man. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, quick, quick story about that old reflow oven. I've never seen anyone do this, and, and Parker is a champ for this. We had, I can't remember what the board was, but we had a board with, like, i had like it was like a hundred and twenty four Something odd pin processor on it, and we had to pull it from the board. And it's just like, God, like, get the IR heater out or get whatever out. And I'm like, Parker's like, no, no. So he cranks up the oven. And first of all, just this is important to note this oven could open up like a grill, mm-hmm. it, it had like a hinge on the side. So he places this board in the oven and lets it go get into the reflow zone, opens it up, and just grabs the processor <laughs> off the board, like, just yeah. ninjas that thing right off the board. I'm like, holy shit, I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> Hey, guess what?
1: We put the new one, we, we put a new part on it, and it worked. Yeah.
2: Can't so. do that with the Heller, unfortunately. No, it's just that door not open got, very it's fast. Got like <laughs> things, it's got
1: things like safety lockouts oh, yeah. and stuff.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you could probably disable those. Yeah. If you don't want to.
1: Oh, man. The, I'm just remembering old Fab now and just like all those
2: decrepit machines, <laughs> all the hacky shit that we had to do. I mean we got it working, right? Yeah. Yeah, we got how to get stuff working. Yeah,
0: yeah my no. first pick and place had it was just a bundle of cables like wrapped up with cable wrap. That was the strain relief. And so it wasn't a good strain relief, so like every few months one of the 40 cables going to the head would break a wire. I have to unwrap the whole bundle, figure out which one it was and then like replace that thing. So that was there's was a lot of downtime with that old machine.
1: So the, um, my next thing was, like, the best things. We're talking about the worst things right now. But uh, <laughs> what, what, what's, like, the best things about starting WMD that you have? Like, best memories or maybe things you're looking forward to? Uh,
0: best things are, like, when you look up to somebody who's an artist and they have and use your stuff. And they love the stuff that you've made just as much as you love them. That is the best. The absolute best.
2: You, you willing to drop any names?
0: Yeah, so I paid, so this was like 2008, I think. I paid $300. It was a donation to, to do a meet and greet with Trent Reznor. So money went to a good cause. Like Buddy had a disease and then um, the money went to him. But it was a meet and greet. So met him, brought him a couple pedals. And uh, Tom Morello was opening with, I don't remember what band he was with that at that point, but Nine Inch Nails was there and I met trent and i handed him a geiger counter he's like oh sweet i already have one of these i got it from roger at big city music and uh we used it all over the ghosts record or the, the last record they did at that time so i think it was that one i'm not 100 percent sure on the timeline but he already had one and i was like but he still took the other one <laughs> 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 so that was pretty cool yeah
2: that's awesome
0: yeah so I was like pretty early and that made me feel really good validated about what I was doing
2: oh
1: for sure yeah, yeah that'll that oh, yeah. You, you, someone that uses your product says this is is awesome and that really you know picks yeah, it up yeah
2: so how about some uh some war stories from things that have not gone as uh, as you planned
0: um I've done recalls for sure I don't we Oh, yeah, wow. I've done a few recalls. Those that's kind of the worst cuz it's like you're done and then suddenly you're not done. In fact, you're starting over.
2: <laughs> you're done in a in a really big not done in a really big yeah. way. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I've done a few recalls. Some from like just minor engineering mistakes, one from a big design decision that I had to pull back uh like 120 boards that were pretty expensive to make that's the back of our mixer board I had to replace. The entire board's four layer board, about 800 parts on it, all had to be replaced. Just there's no salvaging any of it. So, is
1: that because it just didn't meet specifications? Or I made a
0: poor design decision that I thought was a good idea. That wasn't a good idea. I made the channels all go to minus 30 dB on the sliders and then go to mute instantly. So you wouldn't have to have mute buttons. I thought that was a great idea. Like, but you can't do a smooth fade because it'd click in. It's great for dance music, but oh, not great yeah. for anything ambient or even you other parts Just had parts a hard
2: transition as you just move the slider slightly. Yeah,
0: yeah. so oh, not man. not a good choice, but nobody knows about that because everybody sent them back in, and we got it taken care of, and ended up with a good product. But that was very expensive to fix.
2: You know, uh, just just out of curious, not not to dwell on that, but but you know, for our listeners who might be experiencing something similar mm-hmm. like how did you go about doing that fix like what was like you okay so you discover that what's your choice what's your decision well there's
0: a couple parts of it so there's like the the fix itself was easy i just had to figure out what i wanted it to do instead and that required a new board but the the hard part was like managing customers and managing disappointment and expectations so like the hard part of doing that fix was not the engineering or the manufacturing it was like Calling all the dealers and saying, hey, you got to send back all these mixers, you know, put it on our shipping account. Any customers that have them, like, get them back or give us our contacts so we can get them back and then pay for all the shipping. And and just it's a lot of paperwork and a lot of, like, disappointment. So that was the hmm. that's what had to be managed. And that's the not fun so, part. That
1: That's an interesting recall because it it performed as designed. It just was not a good design mm-hmm. idea was a customer says something about it or did you discover it and just wanted to change it because you thought it was bad well, i made or, it bad in the first
0: like, place was, so i thought it was good and then i heard from customers and they well, were like it, it, well, it is
2: good it is good in some, it's realms. Good in like, some like, realms that's yeah. that's that's totally valid yeah.
0: but overall it was not a good decision it was a it was a mistaken it was a just a bad idea overall
1: so it was customer expectations is what drove yes the recall
0: customers received something right. and it behaved differently than they thought it should and i heard enough of them and then they made a compelling argument so i said yes we need to absolutely change the design and that's on us got to do it
2: so so the, that has been updated i mean that that, that happened you know a while yeah, ago 2016. And, and there's many, yeah there's many revisions since then and and that product sells very well yeah. still to this yeah day. it's
0: done really well yeah, since then. Yeah, so yeah, doing the recall was the right thing, even though it sucked at the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's always like easier.
1: Well, it's better. It's better than. It's better than someone plugging in their guitar and their guitar explodes.
0: Oh yeah, that's so. way. Yeah. When
1: when you said recall, <laughs> that's straight liability. That, that's <laughs> like, immediately where my brain went was like. Holy crap! Who did you right.
0: mean? No, we do <laughs> we do all like low voltage stuff. So the worst that can happen is a capacitor explodes if it's you know powered wrong or something, and that's no. annoying but not crazy. I'm not going to start a huge I, fire. Th- th-
2: there is something interesting though with with this industry. Technically, there's 24 volts available, mm-hmm. right? Uh, or, or or even potentially a little bit more, you know, because the case is actually plugged into mains. Uh, but the 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 thing about it is that this is the only industry that I'm aware of where the customer receives a product where the circuit boards are just straight up exposed. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, other than like you you know buying an Arduino or whatever for your DIY stuff, like this is straight up. You you have you have one sixth of a of a box that that the product uh, you know shows up with just one panel. So, I mean, we're talking about a module, yeah, Yeah, a module. Build your own
0: synthesizer. So you're buying a piece of a kit, really.
2: Like 500 series recording equipment, that comes all encased. You know? Some of
0: it does. So. Some of it is not is less encased than it used to be. It's just a, like an L bracket. You can still see the boards on some of the lower cost things. But well, like the proper old API mm. stuff, that's fully encased. Yeah. yeah. But there's a DIY element to that whole scene now, too. And little companies doing kind of the same thing that we started doing, cutting costs in little places. So sheet metal yeah, is expensive.
2: Yeah, yeah for sure. In in low quantities, it, it has an exponential path. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely.
1: So, so William, what is the future of WMD? The future of WMD
0: is where do you where would you like to see it go well? I would like to see us continue on the path we're on. It's kind of a boring answer. But I think we're building the best stuff we've ever built. We're putting out products that we're all very, very proud of. And I'd like to continue to do that and continue to be inspired to be able to create the great products that we're putting out now. So hopefully I can keep getting good ideas and our design team can keep getting good ideas and turning these things into real things. I'd probably like to go in a direction of making a desktop synthesizer at some point and, but just stay in the course is, we're not trying to get giant. We're not trying to take over the world. I like being the size we are, maybe a little bit bigger, is very happy size because I get to know everybody and we're a big family. You get too big, you start to not know all the people in your industry or in your, your company. That could be difficult. So I like it. I want it to stay kind of small and be a little cottage and sustainable. So hopefully that's the future. Post-pandemic, post <laughs> well, post-pandemic. Uh, this new world future
2: well so far wmd has been uh surviving the pandemic fairly Mm -hmm. well so it's been it's been good Uh, luckily
0: yeah we've been fortunate that most people can work from home and we have a big enough shop that we can socially distance and do everything safely yeah
2: for yeah for the for the most part there's what three maybe four people who go into the shop now and they have you know 500 to 800 square feet to their selves. Yep, you know?
0: yep. totally. Cool.
2: <laughs> well, does uh, anyone have anything else? I think I'm good.
1: Okay, well, cool. Well, thank you, William, for being on our podcast. It was uh, a lot of fun talking to you. This is the first time i ever talked yeah. to you. I've been to your show before. Oh, yeah? Before.
0: Okay, I've heard your voice plenty because yeah. I've listened to your podcast quite a bit. So... <laughs> well, thank you. Well, yeah, um, thanks for coming yeah, on. Yeah, I've,
1: I've been over to yep. WMD, and I think we did a quick tour of the line, and then uh, I saw Steven's little corner.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, in the back? So, the so you cave. saw the Datron?
1: Yeah. Yeah, the yeah, big cool. CNC machine.
0: Cool. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. So I think my favorite thing was the uh, the direct printer. Oh, the, U- the UV uh, printer. Don't get me started. Yeah, the direct UV printer that's in the greenhouse yeah. in the back. Yeah. Are you interested yeah. in that? <laughs> 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 no, I just thought it was really, well, yeah. I just found it. Yeah. 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 What are y'all doing now for graphics? Then.
0: Well. Well. We- so we have the large CNC, the Datron, um, and it does mm-hmm. engraving. So we're making our panels in house, and then the printer had some problems, and there's a lot of problems. So we're getting our graphics done outside of the shop now, which is unfortunate. Okay. Not what I wanted, but like I can't hang with that printer. It requires way too much damn maintenance. So. Yeah, yeah. I,
2: I that 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 was kind of a um, a, a a perfect storm of f- almost everything that could go wrong went wrong. Uh, like from from day one that that, mm-hmm. that thing got delivered, and and ninety eight percent of it is not on us.
0: Yeah, so. and it's like there's a third party, there's a manufacturer, the dealer, and then us, and it's the dealer's fault. The manufacturer won't do anything. And everyone's
1: pointing fingers. Yeah, oh, the dealer no. won't do anything. It's,
0: so oh. yeah, so it's it's a piece of junk. It's just sitting there. So <laughs> yeah. if anybody wants yeah. it for a good if any, price, if anyone
2: if anyone is interested yeah. uh,
1: in, in a UV printer, yeah. so I'm starting the bid at one dollar.
0: <laughs> yeah, we're probably going to um, put it up on eBay starting at ninety nine cents. <laughs> <laughs> Local oh, pickup yeah. only. Yeah, you you manage the shipping. <laughs> yep. <laughs>
1: Oh, cool. Again, thank you, William, for coming on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
0: Cool. Um, yep. yep. So you want to yep. sign us out? That was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I was your guest, William Matthewson.
1: And we're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And
2: Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy.